0: And I have been elected to be the host-ish of this podcast that we are doing that is the ABCs of Green Politics. So I've got three other people here with me. I have got Professor John Barry, I have got Circia McHugh, and I have Sinead Mercier as well. I suppose the genesis of this particular group of boldies is that we felt that. There might be a little bit of a lack of understanding of green politics. And I suppose what we want to do is just have a podcast as a political education project to go through the ABCs of green politics. So each time that we do this podcast, we will pick words starting with a letter of the alphabet. And um, This is a very sophisticated format. And today is A. So we're going to go through anthropocentrism which is one of my least favourite words, and agriculture, which as a word is fine, but you know not as tricky as anthropocentrism. So does anyone want to start off? Okay, Saoirse, go for it.
1: We're very, very clear that when we're talking about green politics, we're not talking about Irish Green Party politics, but rather what green politics is and what green parties everywhere should strive toward and what everyone everywhere should strive towards. Because if once you've a, a clear understanding of it, there's not much to argue with in it. That's my tuppence worth.
0: Yeah, I, I, to- I totally accept what you're saying, Saoirse. Um, I think, I think it is that people in general might be interested in what green politics actually does look like and what it should be. So that's, that's, a, that's a very good point. John, you wanted to come in?
2: Yes, maybe just to add to my view, I think green politics is not coextensive with the Green Party Uh, Neither is climate breakdown, you know, an issue that only environmentalists and so on can talk about. And that's something that I'm I'm hoping we can, you know, address in in this podcast as we go from A to Z or Z. There's any Americans out there uh, of what green politics is. But we're starting with A today and and anthropocentrism. uh, It it doesn't really uh, trip off the tongue. And that effectively is a word that means human centeredness I think it's a good word and, and the concept is a, is a useful one to think about in terms of particularly human arrogance, in terms of dominating uh, the non-human world, uh, a sense of human exceptionalism. I mean, I'm always amazed that people forget that human beings are not just like animals. We are animals. We're, we're uh, an evolved species of primate with highly evolved communication and, uh, you know, ethical senses. But actually, why do we think in a way that we are exempt from the basic biophysical laws of life. And that's, in in a way, part of what anthropocentrism is gesturing towards, that this sense of human beings dominating the planet, you know, in terms of whether it's the the billions of creatures that are uh, slaughtered every year uh, for the meat industry. We'll get onto that probably in the agricultural discussion. So for me, just to finish, I mean, to me, it's always been an essential, unique selling point of green politics. It's that... Unlike feminism or anarchism or, or socialism, it, it has this moral sense that we need to extend our moral circle of concern and dethrone humanity as more important or standing over and, and superior to uh, the rest of the planet. That doesn't mean to say that we're simply on the same level as a tsetse fly, and we can get into that, but it is an important issue that particularly affects particularly Western culture, this sense of supreme domination of the planet.
0: You know, I, I suppose I, I just kind of have a bit of a question. When does anthropocentrism move from human-centred towards human supremacy? Because I, I suppose it's, it's just kind of interesting that it's, it's kind of hard to, um, you know, like we, 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 would, we would say that most politics is human-centred, and yet it's very obvious that it's not very human-centered in some sense as well, because we don't really treat humans particularly well either. So I, I'm just kind of wondering, you know, where where is the line there between something being human-centered and being sort of human supremacist?
2: To me, it, the, the, the opposite of anthropocentrism, at least philosophically, is called ecocentrism, where human beings are simply equal to other creatures on the planet, morally speaking. And I, I don't agree with that. Um, I, I do think there's nothing illegitimate about being concerned about our own species. For me, the line is the arrogance uh, and the lack of respect that is shown to the modern human world in this, uh, this arrogance, which we've really inherited from, well, take your pick, uh, Christianity, the Enlightenment, capitalism, and so on. And, and that arrogance means that we, we don't treat other species in particular as having their own interests, that they're simply resources. We commodify them, you know, we make them into property. And so for me, it's that issue of, of moral respect. That's the point beyond which you, human-centeredness has now become this dominating supremacy, which I, I think is completely ethically unjustifiable. Yeah, um, Sinead, it seems like you'd I like
0: to come in on arrogance. <laughs> You have you have more to say on this particular topic and word.
3: Um. <laughs> thanks, Lorna. I, I, um, Yeah. J- just following on from what John has said, and, and also just to touch on, I suppose, what uh, Siushan and you know the, the nature of green politics and what we're hoping this podcast to be. I suppose, as John has mentioned there, that kind of there's a question around whether has there always been an innate kind of human drive to to dominate or or have control over other things or other creatures and the the ecofeminist perspective would be that the the domination that we seek that certain parts of society uh, human society seek to have over the environment is also kind of connected to that need to dominate other human beings um or women as well in particular or other types of, like whether it comes down to race or LGBTQI as well. And that desire to dominate or control, like there's arguments about whether that is actually a general human trait or or whether human beings... Uh, by virtue of the fact of being such incredible creatures that are formed by their social circumstances, their environmental circumstances. Perhaps that's something that we need not always engage in, that we can either move beyond it or it's, it's not really something that we have to have as part of our societies. I know that's something that's spoken about in uh, the Make Rojava Green Again, the, the, the Rojava Green Again book, Saisha, that, that you lent me as well. And it's certainly something that, that ecofeminism talks about an awful lot as well. And I suppose where this notion of anthropocentrism kind of comes from, or, or or is related to that, is for me anyway, I don't think that human beings are innately um negative or damaging to the planet. I think just as John said, we are animals and we are part of the great like world of life just as much as any other creature. But because of our capacity to be formed and created so much by the societies that we invent out of nothing. I mean, and we're such creative creatures, um, which is wonderful and liberating, but in other ways can be very damaging and very constricting as well. And I think that we've chosen one means of organizing our societies which seeks to dominate, which seeks to control, and seeks to produce and, and squeeze as much as it can out of other forms of life. And really I find what we're seeing at the moment is not kind of an era of where human beings are destroying the planet, but one particular form of organising our economies and our societies. Capitalism. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And also capitalist patriarchy um, as well. And uh, the the, the wonderful thing about this is that there are other other forms of organising our lives and our societies and economies that can bring us out of this or that are there and this capacity to be there. But in order to look at those with clear eyes and, and choose one that is positive, I suppose we have to acknowledge a lot of what green politics has kind of slid into and, and what sort of types of hierarchies it upholds at the moment. And for me, we can see that quite clearly in, in that the history of Irish, like mainstream environmentalism and comes from quite a colonial background. Um, the environment is quite interesting because, you know, you it's not like others other similar kind of movements in that you don't have like a human at the heart of it that can speak for themselves it's something that can very handily be used to greenwash or um kind of be a cover for other ideological kind of concerns and our our issue here is to ensure that what we use environmentalism for or environmentalism environmental politics for actually doesn't doesn't just greenwash business as usual or doesn't greenwash kind of hierarchies that are in place but actually is truly liberating or truly will tackle climate change.
0: That sounds great Um, Saoirse you wanted to come in there on on, on that particular point.
3: Yeah I
1: was just listening to what Sinead and John were saying there about like the anthropocentrism versus the ecocentrism like there is a point especially when it you know it comes down to national politics whereby Greens often are accused of being totally ecocentric and having this sort of, you know, Victoriana kind of cleared the Serengeti kind of politics. And because I do think there's a way for environmentalism that can put humans at the center of it in that if every single one of us can say, well, you know, can take ownership and say, well, my environment and that's the air I breathe, the species that live around me, they can't talk, but I can talk. And if we can all feel that for ourselves, I think, you know, I think we'd have a really robust environmental movement. And I do think that aspects of environmental politics in Ireland have a problem in that they don't put the human at the center of it. On a global scale, you know, I can understand how you can end up not doing that. But when you're talking about day-to-day politics and you're saying, well, why aren't we getting more votes or why aren't we getting more support? It's because people aren't being shown that they have an environment too. And it's as much theirs as it is anyone else. And I see this like so much so with the difference between like urban areas and rural areas and how they vote. The relationship in urban areas, and I'm talking about an Irish context here that are voting for Green Party members or environmentalists, is often in this weird, oh, it would be nicer if if I could cycle or I could have somewhere recreational. And, And that's fine. And then you get rural people in rural areas being like oh but it's it's green it's fine here but it, it really I think fails and it has failed in Ireland to convince people that our environment like it is part of us it's not just something you can enjoy it's it's something that is there whether you're there or not but it's also it's also there within you as in I do think there's a way that we can have people Sinead at the center of it that can speak for the environment that everyone can and i think it's because a lot of this it, it isn't being connected to people
0: that's that's um that's that's really interesting point siasha and you know it is it is funny when you're in a political organization and you're trying to um talk about concepts like anthropocentrism and saying you know humans are far too centered in the web of life or in the natural world but you also have to go and ask those humans to vote for you and like I remember when I initially kind of heard this word at Green Party meetings you know you can kind of there there is that stereotype there of environmentalists in particular and it's this kind of urban kind of people who are like oh you know votes for amoebas like you know we we want we want you know people to we want we want animals to have more rights than people and you know we care more about different types of animals than people and you know it's it's a stereotype that's very obviously not true but it's it's just kind of interesting you know the way that that you're saying that things could be more person-centered in so far as like people can actually internalize the fact that they are a part of a very complex um, sort of network of various different life forms and you know you can take on that I suppose stewardship role for it because again like you know the amoebas aren't going to go to ballot box and vote for an environmental politician number one um, in order to change legislation like you know we we do actually have a responsibility um, to to kind of um do stuff like that
2: if i could just c- come back in and pick up on some of the things yeah. that people are saying all of which i think are absolutely valid i mean when you drill down into this concept of anthropocentrism i think shanae put it very well it, it actually is a very androcentric so i do that an academic word that male-centeredness. I mean, that actually, is this gender? Is there's uh, class? And that's part of the, the problem some people have with this kind of ethical perspective, which many green activists, environmentalists have, is that um, often this ethical approach is very individualized, and also it forgets about issues like the structure of the economy, that, that it, it, the corporations, capitalism, uh, extractivism. All of these things, these systems are, are, are what's driving eco side. These ideas of domination of nature are obviously collude in that, and it's part of the, I don't know, ideology or consciousness which goes along with this. The dig and you know the dig and gig economy, as, as Naomi Klein puts it. So th- there is an issue that we shouldn't deflect away when we're talking about these kind of ethical concerns about worldviews, which can actually sometimes verge into you know spirituality or a sense of meaning uh, in the world. And I think it's a, it's a good way of thinking about this is that what's happened particularly in Western cultures over the last couple of centuries under industrial capitalism is that where once the natural world was a realm of meaning, you know, where people found sense in a, in a lived environment and we are narrative beings, human beings, You know, we have a, we have a storied residence of our place uh, where, where we live. These aren't just abstract environments we live in. But we've turned this realm of meaning into a realm of means, means to our ends. I mean, to me, that's the, the issue that I always found. Green politics was, was recuperative. It's trying to, you know, reconnect with uh, some things. And it's not about going back to the past. Of course, that's the other standard uh, argument that's often from the faces of, of green and environmental activists. Oh, you want to take us back to the cave and so on. It isn't about that, it's not about romanticizing the past, as Sertia said, but it is about seeing that this ethical view is important because it doesn't form our, our thinking and our acting, but this is not to deflect away from political economy, you know, the way the uh, you know, work is organized and and so on, uh, because that, that an ethical critique on its own will not change politics, important enough as, uh, as that is. So to me, they're, they supplement one another political struggle, political analysis, as well as this ethical perspective. And again, to go back to something I said earlier, that, that to me was always the attraction of green politics, is that it, it includes those who don't have a voice. You know, I've always seen uh, myself in some ways as channeling my inner Lorax. You know, who speaks for the trees because they don't have a voice? So who speaks for the, you know, the animals who speak a different language to us? And, and it's connected. And again, it's probably prefiguring a later discussion we'll have one of the other unique features of green politics is that it also includes those yet to be born it includes future generations and again they have no voice they don't even exist but what green politics is unique in that respect is that its moral uh, circle of concern includes the more than human world and it also includes those uh, future generations who have have yet to be born and they are of course connected and you know we can talk about the future generations perhaps in a a later episode.
0: I I suppose just to pick up kind of on what you're saying there about oh this criticism like oh you want to bring us back to the past. Um, I'm actually totally okay with that now like I'm quite happy to lean into that because uh, I'm I'm just back from Donegal and well it's two things really like the first thing is that like capitalism as a system of organizing as Sinead was talking about is that not that old at all it's only about sort of 300 years old I'm currently reading um Conor McCabe's book on money and it's oh it's so good so good because there's just some really he's he's a very good writer um and he's He's very much in that tradition of James Conley, like a writer who's extremely catty about people and and um and topics. Cause just, just the cattiness is uh very good. Like some of the footnotes are hilarious. Like they're just like he he has this whole thing about um you know capitalism like as Sinead was saying like capitalism is not a natural thing to have happened and the formation of money is not a natural thing to have occurred either and he he has a particular footnote in it about how the creation of money is taught in um, economics lectures and I sat through this exact lecture myself which is you know there were there were, there were two demands that couldn't be met by um, each other so that's why a token was created which is money so I, I have apples and I want a pair of shoes and John has something else sheep and you know we can't reconcile those two things so um, what we do instead is that uh, we create a token and money and he, he just has this footnote in it that's like um, this is akin to the teaching of creationism and is taught in all third level institutions in Ireland. I, I mean in some sense you know there there are in fact systems of organisation that predate um, capitalism and that aren't in fact quite so anthropocentric really as capitalism is because it's not so much about um, domination and the domination being of course the need of capital to reproduce itself and I, I suppose the second kind of thing or where it sort of feeds in again is and this is stuff that you have said before Sinead but I think it's I think it's really beautiful like the, the, the Irish word for environment is cove hail so in living together with life and it's there, there is this older conception of how you as a person live within the natural world and how you actually um, not just survive, but thrive in it. So, do you know what? Like, I I don't care about flying cars or going into space anymore sick of that shit um just want to go back to the past you know like the the, the peasants the peasants on the commons had a much nicer life than we had um, they actually worked less hours than we do now um you know so i i'm actually kind of okay with that with doing that because capitalism is a, is a highly anthropocentric form of organizing and running society i think <laughs> this kind of brings us into the second part, and I suppose this is kind of where the natural world and capitalism really do meet up with each other. Agriculture obviously is a form of labour and work, I suppose, that you could say is a way of harnessing natural resources and working with them and producing I suppose what, what what you would what you kind of think it should be producing is food, enough food to feed people. But unfortunately, um, as we can see from what's happening um, this week with the uh, the meat workers, is not even particularly doing that. I'll go to you first, Siasha, just because you I, I you 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 have qualification in food security, as as I've been explaining to people um, quite a lot. Like um you know, it's not just that. You're, you're very bold, like it's that you actually know what you're talking about. So do you, do you have any thoughts on our second A of the evening, which is agriculture?
1: Several things jump out, but in the context of the meat plant outbreaks, which like, you know, Upton Sinclair was writing about in the 30s. He was writing about the mistreatment of workers. It was after that book, The Jungle, there was a the huge reform in processing standards and what he said afterwards he said he meant to hit america in the heart but he hit them in the stomach instead full disclosure i am a vegetarian and i try veganism every every week i have like a that's it i'm going vegan and a a lot of it is to do with i suppose maybe i maybe i imagine too much but the horror of our industrialized agriculture you know when we're talking about the mass production of animal products, and I'm talking about on a global scale now, it's really hard to fully internalize the scale we are talking about, like, you know if there there are chicken houses that have 50,000 animals in them, like 50,000 animals is it's, it's beyond logical comprehension and the suffering and the pain and the pollution from this type of agriculture is it's beyond words. And then the next layer on top of that, so I'm going to say that the environmental mistreatment is the bottom layer, and that would be, you know, all the waste products, the water use, the food use. And on top of that is animal suffering. Then on top of that, as we've seen in Ireland, there is a strong tradition in industrialized agriculture for exploitation of workers. You know, there are people being kept in horrific conditions like they were talking this year about the hot bedding where workers didn't even have their own beds and shifts in the factories on top of worker exploitation we have a product that we're producing too much there's quite unethical practices I believe in how companies force their food products into different areas, they undercut countries' whole economies. Like what Ireland is is partaking in in different African countries at the moment with trying to dump milk, is you know it it destroys entire communities and it forces people into cities into low paid factory work. It's always happened. It's what happened after NAFTA in the U.S. and in Mexico. There was a do you remember? Was it Nestle that was? convincing mothers not to breastfeed
0: yeah i think it was them yeah
1: like so there's a constant trying to open up these new markets and then we're paying for it with our health on top of that so i think from top to bottom globally and ireland you know it's very easy to look around and say oh but look we're all green fields we're fine ireland does have a big role to play in that and ireland even though it is all rolling fields like we have massive industrial agriculture companies situated in Ireland at the moment who are you know at the forefront of exporting milk powder to China and they're at the forefront of aggressive marketing campaigns to create other markets. Like it's not this simple, oh well we're just simply giving the people what they want. And it's it has been happening and it, it's continuing to happen. All you know our co-ops, the famous Irish co-ops are becoming co-ops in only in nothing but name anymore. They're registering as PLC companies. And I do see looking at what's happening, especially around these new initiatives where they're trying to get suckler farmers. So this would be uh, farmers who raise animals for beef to raise the calves from the dairy industry because of our expansion of the dairy industry. And they're saying, well, you raise that, you'll be guaranteed a price, but you buy your inputs from us. And what you're looking at if, if we continue down that path, is an almost Americanized style system where farmers are no longer farmers, but they're farm managers. They just manage their farms and it's this closed loop and it's run by Beer or whatever they're called now. I am extremely worried about the future of agriculture in Ireland because I see, it, I see us racing as fast as we can towards an American style agriculture.
0: So that's all like really grim. Um super, super grim. I, I do I do have to say though that uh since since we were chatting last time, I was I was think I was thinking about what you were saying, because you did say stuff similar to this, and then I was just like Though no, like I, I I couldn't I like, you know, do you know when Lisa kind of, you know, the pet lamb starts talking to her and um like it's just like don't eat me <laughs> So I have managed to not eat eat meat since then. Because, um, like it's it's just it's like it doesn't it doesn't seem to benefit anyone. Like the whole thing just doesn't seem to benefit anyone at all. Like it does doesn't benefit the farmers, doesn't it certainly doesn't benefit the land anyway, because like even even looking out my own window here and looking at all those Glanbea ads and, you know, it's all these green fields and grass and stuff and it all looks very green and things. And it's just like that's uh, that's an ecological nightmare. Like, that's that's a complete monoculture. It's horrible. You know, like, it's really bleak and I don't really want the landscape to kind of... Like, there's no need for the landscape to look like this. It's just very, very artificial and there's just no need for it. Um,
3: Sinead, you wanted to come in. That was brilliant, Sisha. Like, really, really good overview there of, of Irish farming and um, I think that's a really, really important part of the debate on, on climate in Ireland because I feel that there's a real kind of, there's kind of like this easy trope that comes up again and again to kind of bash farmers in Ireland when it comes to climate change. And of course, there are vested interests. I mean, Larry Goodman, you know, second, if not sometimes first, um, biggest uh, beneficiary of the of the Common Agricultural Programme. You have Glanbia. you have these huge kind of Kerry Group, huge big organisations that benefit from the cap and other subsidies. But then at the same time, like I do think, I, there are, as you as you've known, um, often said there. There are ways of farming in a manner that's beneficial for the environment. That that's kind of small scale farming that's good for the not only the environment but also um, society as well. Like I've just, uh, I, I found I stole these from my dad. These books by Jan Healy <laughs> about Mayo, and so no one shouted stop. The formerly the death of an Irish town and, and nineteen acres as well, and um, just kind of how the land commission. W- you know that they kind of talk about like a, a the past, as you mentioned as well, Lorna, and how you know the the Land Commission and the the amount of land that small farmers were given was so beneficial for Ireland in many ways, and gave people kind of a right to subsistence, and I think framing agriculture in terms of that right to subsistence, and um, for the environment, like where I live now in Connemara, there's loads of biodiverse farming going on, but. It doesn't need to be productive because most of the people doing the farming are pensioners. They're, they're farmers who now get the state pension and they raise a couple of cattle um, to sell at market. And that cattle is actually very good for certain parts of the area because it's so rocky and so bare. Um, now, sometimes, obviously, if there's too many cattle in the land, it can be damaging and they can eat kind of young trees and so on. But it's nothing compared to kind of County Clare, where I was spending most of lockdown, where you had the silage, you had the, the bright green grass, you had no lichen on the rocks at all because of the, the, the emissions in the air. I think, again, it kind of goes back to that idea of whether humans are, are fundamentally bad for the environment. And what happened when Anne joined the European Union and brought itself under the kind of habitats directive and the birds directive and so on, was that all farming on the Burren was banned and farmers were kind of moved off that and told that they were damaging the landscape and then damaging the land. But actually, after they did that, the land started to degrade much faster because for centuries, for millennia even, people had been farming on that land, but in a very kind of sustainable, low-impact manner. And it was beneficial, um, the kind of winterage that happened with the cattle. And I think that kind of that kind of perspective of coheal, again, as as Lorna mentioned, moving from a perspective where the environment is something that's around us, environs us, is separate from us. So the word timplacht is kind of like a, a bastardisation Irish for environment, but the the actual word is coheal, and um, the lived in life. And um, I think yeah, it's there, there's what, how do we move, or even continue living in keeping with that while well, bringing kind of more 20th century updates. I mean, Brehan law is often referred to as like a great example of how we can do things. And they had, you know, if you cut down a tree, it was equal to uh, an oak tree. It was equal to the life of a king and so on. But um, they also had a form of currency, which uh, was young female slaves. Uh, so <laughs> I don't want to go there. <laughs> Bring Please. it back. <laughs> Bring back. So, and jumping
0: over fires, herding cows.
3: Saying nothing. But yeah, but uh, yeah. So, if we could have updates with this, um, <laughs> but like actually, just something I would like to talk about agriculture and because I I just find it so interesting working on human rights and climate. I'm working on human rights and climate at the moment. And I suppose it's so difficult because human rights is probably one of the most anthropocentric kind of forms of social justice you could probably get in this area. But it's interesting because I suppose the best way of doing it maybe is through like environmental procedural rights. So those who are closest to the environment, those who are dependent on it, so they can't conceptualize environment as around me or separate from me because they actually fundamentally depend on it for everything in their life which is what you get with like indigenous cultures or very marginalized peoples, Um, or even in Ireland, I mean, people who live in shoddy, like cheap accommodation that's got mold on the walls and living in in air polluted areas. How could the environment is is impacting on their life day in, day out. And I think that kind of conceptualization that if we, if we put forward the concerns of those closest to the environment and listen to them truly, then you can, vindicate the rights of the environment itself. Uh, and I think that's very interesting for environmental politics because it tend, you, you're coming up precisely against that kind of colonial urge or that urge to control the narrative of green, of green politics or like a fear of the collective, basically this idea that's rampant in, in, in current mainstream environmentalism and mainstream politics that you have to have carbon taxes, that you have to have consumer taxes, that people are damaging for the environment that we must clear the people off i mean there, there's elements of that there is an element that believes overpopulation is the cause of climate change and if you clear people off the land it'll be better for it and that perspective is live i mean there's no point in denying it it is there every we set up the irish feminists ecofeminist collective because we had this one man during repeal that kept talking at the end of environmental event and going no one's mentioning over during repeal (laughs) which was gas you know and they wouldn't talk about repeal but i think that that is a very for me that that is what environmental politics must do it must raise up the rights of those who are at the coalface who are suffering the worst from from climate um the poorest basically like Philip Alston the special rapporteur on human rights and poverty he himself said that we're going to have a scenario of climate apartheid, where the poor cannot escape and the rich can and they're already building like compounds on higher land and that that um, we have to stop fearing the collective and instead vindicate them and that means smaller farmers not their managers John, you
0: want you to come in on 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 some of the points there?
2: Yeah, now just reflecting on on what everybody has said, but particularly um, what Sinead was saying it, it, I've always been on the view that whenever we have to have laws, legislation for something it's a it's a design failure. you know we shouldn't have to have laws that ensure the quality of of our food or um, you know ensure that animals aren't treated badly. So, for me, you know, there are other ways in which we can you know, address uh, you know by redesigning the system it 's a system problem and, and, and laws, regulations, and so on are, are a sign of of system failure. But I think it, you know, bringing it back to a bigger or a higher level or a more conceptual level, you know we can probably imagine a post capitalist society many of us are involved in politics to bring that about of course, but we can never ever have a post agricultural society. it is absolutely foundational to what it means to be in a different way of living and working the land in a more harmonious way. And it's that, that idea of farmers being stewards of the land, not in some, you know, faux complementary sense, but actually they have a vested interest, you know, as Sinead was pointing out, you know, going back centuries, if not more, it, people indigenous to a place know the ecosystem, know how to maintain it, but not in some sort of national park sense, that this is a, it's a working landscape. It's, you know, it's where labor, and, and food and fibre and fuel and so on are being produced. And it seems to me that's the appropriate attitude we should have, is that idea of stewards. And that's, that's sustainability in terms of that. That's a much older tradition of how human beings engage with their environment. That, of course, this issue, as many of us have reflected on it already in our conversation, the issue of the land and agriculture is, is particularly important in Ireland, partly because of our colonial history you know, being dispossessed of the land, you know, having absentee landlords for for centuries and so on. You know, to me, it's always been best uh, expressed in John B. Keynes. You know, the field really brings home the intimate connection that the land is not just even a productive resource, it's your identity. You know, the classic one we say to each other often in Ireland is, where are your people from? You know, because you want that connection uh, to, to, to a place and so on. And, and for me, that is part of the localism of green politics, that, that it is about re-embedding, re, re-inhabiting a, a particular place. And actually, in terms of agency, just to finish, for a lot of people, the planetary is too large a scale. They can't even conceptualize it. It's just too too big, too abstract. Whereas protecting place is something that people can get behind because they can see the effects of their of their action. And I think that place-based activism is certainly something that I, I'm seeing more of and I absolutely take heart and hope from it that this, you know, you save the whole by saving the parts. And that to me has always been part of what the Green Movement was about, you know, acting locally and, and, and thinking globally.
1: What I always find really interesting is that if you look back to, you know, the end of the 1800s, there was big campaigns against people being cleared from the land. And our conception in Ireland of farming as predominantly livestock-based is really, really recent. And like, if you look at the old posters from the Land League, they're all object, no more landlords grasslands because people were being driven off the land and and their ability to produce food and sustain themselves from the land was being destroyed in favor of livestock for export from landlords. And I often kind of, I think it's quite interesting how, over whatever 100, 50 years, how much we've adopted that now, and we in Ireland feel that like it it almost has a sense of it having been always having been our uh, our agricultural identity to be you know have these grazier domes as they're as they're called, and similarly, you know when I think back to things like the Land League and stuff, I always think like the people weren't fighting for land because they wanted an asset, you know, and it wasn't to boost their their property portfolio, I think. And I could be totally wrong, but it it always seemed to me that it was um, because land, that land gave you freedom. It gave you the freedom to live and the freedom to exist and survive and the freedom to not have to, like, find a waged job somewhere. And now, with what I was talking about with these these kind of closed loop raise the cows, so the inputs and the exports are all owned, that has managed to without taking the land from people, that kind of system again I think removes that freedom that the land has once represented and then just a the third thing there on the representation of the uh, or the the kind of uh, antagonism between greens in the environment and farmers, is I've often found it to be pushed really hard in the media like really hard far more than when I've been canvassing when I've been talking to farmers because well two things because I'd always say to them like if it's agriculture versus the environment then surely one of them will be doing well and secondly you know you could fly planes forever above like a scorched barren earth but agriculture depends on a healthy environment so there is no real line between it and And farmers know that. And once it's been like once you're talking, that seems to be quite common knowledge. So I've I've come to the kind of conclusion myself that this whole environmentalist versus farmers, while there may have been, you know, while there may be a few kind of people not getting on or not understanding, I just think that's a really convenient red herring so that farmers and environmentalists don't get together and realize what the real problem is. And of course the real problem is capitalism where we've come to. And it is the, the consolidation of all of these resources and it's the consolidation of power and money at the very top, because there's like, i and obviously I'm speaking from a male perspective. When I look around, like there is no farmer, there's a few, but there's no farmers doing really, really well. And the environment is not doing really, really well. So obviously they're not in conflict. I do think it's something that is known, but it would be great to see that being spoken about more. And and once again, in a very Irish context, like we have had a problem with a very very vocal and very very powerful farm lobby in this country that has controlled the narrative. But I I think more and more people are seeing that those farm lobby voices don't actually represent what's happening on the ground.
0: These are all great points. Um, and yeah, something something I kind of noticed as well. It's it's. I mean, generally in my encounters, like, it seems as though the processors are really the problem for most of the farmers. Like, it's, it's the processors who are, um, who are who are causing the problems. And sometimes you have farmers who are working as processors themselves. Like, my granddad did that. He would do beef farming during the day, and then at night he would go and work in the meatpacking factory. And he'd have to, he'd actually have to steal beef from the meatpacking factory and bring it home um, to feed, feed um, his family. It was just... Um, you know, which is why we're all kind of city slickers now, because we, we just didn't, we couldn't stay um, on the farm.
3: I just think, yeah, definitely, Saoirse, I, I think you're, you're onto it there with the kind of false um, dichotomy or, or, or false kind of pitting farmers against environmentalists. And, and myself and John Barry and Patrick Besnihan and Damien McGilroy, we recently wrote an article there on the progress of just transition in Ireland. And uh, it's very interesting because I suppose in America, that same kind of jobs versus the environment, that kind of pitting two kind of people against each other, particularly for kind of unionized industrial workers, uh, nuclear power plant workers in particular, that was kind of the narrative that was used by kind of big business um, and multinationals kind of to, to kind of undermine... A coordinated campaign. One person that that really, really fought this was uh, Tony Mazzocchi, a a fantastic union leader. He's absolutely amazing. I really recommend reading his um, biography. He benefited from the the GI Bill. So after World War II, um, people that had fought in World War II in in the US were given kind of free education and and so on and, and lots of kind of social benefits. And he said, why not bring one in like that for nuclear disarmament? So allow workers to transition out of nuclear energy and, and kind of industrial, not only industrial nuclear energy, but kind of warheads and so on by giving them free access to education and social benefits. He was kind of leading in, when he started campaigning, you didn't have a right to know what your body was undergoing when you walked into a nuclear power plant. They, people would be tested kind of at whim by the company. Their bloods would be taken weekly. And there's a very, very good film with uh, Meryl Streep and Cher, uh, which I highly recommend, <laughs> called Silkwood. And uh, it's about Karen Silkwood, who was killed because she knew that cancer rates were rising not only amongst workers in the nuclear power plant facility, but in the local community as well. And she tried to highlight this, and she was affected, probably most likely murdered by the, the nuclear power industry. But in Ireland it's interesting because we benefited from a lot of those kind of campaigns that were done by Tony Mazzocchi and others and uh, one where we do have a, a very fantastic history of kind of organizing on the ground and community organizing around the environment is actually from farmers and local farmers so like one, I'll give you just one example here, is John, County Tipperary farmer John Hanrahan. Uh, and he became a national figure like maybe 50 years ago or so, when he, or 25 years ago, when he took on Merck, Sharp and Dome. So his cattle kept getting sick on the farm. And it was because this multinational corporation was releasing emissions every night and they were making his, his farm animals sick. And everyone tried to cover it up. Everyone just tried to pretend everything was fine. He gradually kind of through citizen science kind of compiled his own evidence that this was happening and as a result now we have much better kind of environmental regulations in Ireland about kind of effluent or um, waste coming from these plants but not only that like I mean you have kind of the, the the nuclear industry in Ireland as well and the fracking ban both big things led not only by kind of trade unions in terms of the ESB, but certainly the fracking ban came mainly because of the backing of the IFA. And in Northern Ireland as well, it's a lot of kind of small farmers who are again kind of coming together. And um, also then, you know, coming from the talk here in Connemara, I think the difficulty is the lack of recognition for that, that the belief that environmental action or action on climate change is this kind of status quo don't interfere with the market you can tinker around the edges with emissions trading schemes all these kind of deflections from the real task of making a better healthier world and and um, which end up often kind of with this very malthusian edge of consumer taxes taxing individuals taxing the individual farmer while if you look at kind of in efforts to tackle infrastructural damage or kind of large-scale infrastructure structure, which will like actively damage the environment <laughs> rather than just kind of a made-up trading scheme kind of thing or offsetting which doesn't work. You get kind of like the, the, Shell, cam- the Shell to Sea campaign or small farmers in County Mayo in a marginalised growth of community who bonded together to stop like one of the, which we now know was one of the 100 companies that contributed to climate change that did most of the damage. And I think that kind of recognition and respect for those groups and and, and environmental actors is, is very much lacking in kind of mainstream environmental language in Ireland. And that just really, really badly needs to be tackled. And I suppose it comes from a fear again, I think, of like class or a dichotomy of where you have a sacred and profane environment. You have sacred environment, national parks, which shouldn't be touched. And then you kind of have profane um, environment which can be destroyed and just in the same way you kind of have romanticized wonderful farmers who you know are doing are doing great things and we should have put up on a pedestal and then you have other farmers you know which valid concerns obviously agribusiness and so on but then you have the ordinary farmer who's just getting by and can't think twice about you know even heating his home he has to cut turf because there's no other way of heating his home the retrofitting scheme isn't brought in he's a small pension farmer you know, barely scraping by. And I think that like, and then you have this very interesting kind of, and I I found the water protectors thing very interesting during the water charges. (laughs) So you had these water protectors, Native Americans and indigenous people in in Canada, and the US kind of fighting pipelines and and so on. And they were kind of romanticized by much of the mainstream environmental movement in Ireland. But then when it came to the water charges, which you know, in many ways coming from, I mean, who can say people in connemara aren't Indigenous? <laughs> like, obviously there's particular concerns and um, particular hierarchies and um, kind of whiteness as well. But it, I just found that very interesting that the protection of water in that context did not fit because it did not fit a kind of what... The mainstream view of environmentalism was to be, which was Malthusian, which was that individual people are damaging the environment and they must be punished or they must be dissuaded from doing it. No, no overarching analysis of their context or what they're living in, and kind of even the definition of the sacred. Why is Irish culture where we protect listener? or we protect kind of places where un, um, unbaptized children are buried, which is in ring forts and, and fairy forts, or even the notion of fairy trees. Like, why aren't they considered part of our cultural heritage, but also our climate action initiatives or environmental initiatives? And I just I just find that very interesting, that kind of disconnect, that in other countries we're very happy to romanticize and speak about these kind of sacred elements of, the, of environmentalism, but not kind of engage with a very pragmatic thing that's happening here in Ireland, where people won't touch a fairy fort. Like, what, what can we harness there, or, or what can we? What are we missing? But that's not part of our legislative uh, structures or our policy structures. Why does a fairy fort sound stupid? <laughs> in the fill you your book here, Sinead. I know I'm selling my book.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's uh, men men who eat ring forts. No. Wait, what's the name of the press who <laughs> publishes it, Sinead?
3: Uh, Ask Eaton Arts, Ask yeah. Public Arts. Again, yes. they're amazing. They, uh, they do a lot of work on kind of, you know, that that lovely kind of culture of like Irish absurdism, like taking environmental subjects and farming subjects and kind of engaging with them with a bit more of a nod and a wink. And yeah, it's it's it, they're brilliant. I really, really recommend looking them up.
0: Like what you were talking about kind of reminded me of two things. So the first thing is... Um there is a very good book. It was written by the Rossport Five. I think it's just called the Rossport Five. Um, I couldn't find it anywhere in Ireland. I, I only found it in London. But the way that they write about their farms and the land that they were on, like it's really beautiful. You know, it, they were just totally, totally disrespected and totally left behind. And I, I think it was when you were talking about about um indigenous people um in America, like so some of those tribes actually donated money to the Rosport Five as well. And it's just it's that that solidarity is it has was there from 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 some of those tribes as well. So it was just um it was just really interesting. And yeah, I, I mean, I, I suppose like if I was to guess the reason why people tend to dismiss fairy for it's possibly because well you know environmentalism is very scientific and it's all about the science and you know all the tech bros and stuff and you know we wear chinos um and you know magic doesn't really have a place in that particular discourse um so i I wonder i wonder i wonder could that be be part of it um but to find out more i'll read Sinead's book
2: (laughs) (laughs) Could, could I guess, it's a really good issue to to raise, you know, our uh, uncomfortableness maybe with ideas of fairy forts and the fairy tree, which we see across around the island. Somehow it's, a, it's an echo of our pre-modern, more primitive past. But the reality is that we, we are thoroughly infused with mythic thinking in terms of technological optimism, you know, crazy ideas of geoengineering the planet. Or for me, the ultimate form of mythical thinking is endless economic growth. I mean, that to me is a form of collective structural wish fulfillment that's up on a par with a belief in, in fairies. And yet, we take that seriously. We see very serious looking people in the Sunday Business Post every week promoting this mythic thinking. So, again, that's maybe something to pick up in uh, a you know, future podcast. I just want to make t- kind of two points on, on the back of what Sinead was saying about the just transition. For me, um, unlike the origins of the just transition, which you know Sinead was you know, saying lies in kind of the nuclear industry in America, how do you, you know, move away from that in a, in a just manner that you compensate workers, or more recently, you know, in, in coal-producing sectors of Europe and Australia, in Ireland we don't have those large-scale uh, extractive carbon energy, uh, like the Canadian tar sands and so on, or Keystone X, that. Sinead was talking about, our big just transition challenge will be in our agricultural communities because the the sad reality is that the current um, agricultural system we have is unsustainable. Uh, It it is based on a, you know, chemicalised, industrialised, large-scale, export-orientated productivism, which is producing, you know, uh, food for export. It's actually trapping farmers into very unequitable Contracts where the margins are really small—it explains why you know there's high levels of depression and suicide and so on in farming, almost echoing you know what Saoirse was saying about the meat plants in in America in the in the early 20th century. And I've often thought that that's the that's the basis upon which you enter into a conversation with our farming communities. Is we have to be honest and say, listen, the science is pretty conclusive that this type of agriculture is not working for uh, the planet's health. It's not giving you a, a steady, secure income. It's completely wrecking the soil. I mean, our soil is, is leaching its fertility. That's why we have to keep putting on pesticides and, and, and nitrate, you know, nitrates and so on. So for me, just the, the, the last point I'd make is in terms of this just transition for agriculture in Ireland, what we really need to do is to have a, an honest but uh, democratic discussion with our local communities. And I've often thought it'd be really interesting to see uh, in a local area the innovation that we could imagine if we say to a community, and this is not just for rural Ireland, it could be for any community, and say, well, we have to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by X to get to net zero by 2030. But it's up to you how you do it. I, I think a lot of the reasons why Greens in general are um, as welcome as a fart in a space often is that we're telling people what to do in a rather nagging top down uh, virtue signaling way informed by by the science my view is we should use the science as the basis for a, a conversation with our communities and say okay listen we, there's no two ways around it we cannot keep uh, you know living and farming in the way that we have but it's up to you to reach these targets uh, and to have almost like you know mini citizens assemblies uh, at local level, so that farmers themselves can come up with solutions. You know, maybe it is about having mixed farming, you know, exploring agroecology, as, as as Sinead said, maybe joining up with the global La Via Campesina movement of peasant farmers around the world. So there's something around that, you know, democratise the implications of the science as opposed to what we see often, and certainly the Green Party is not immune to this, is this top-down technocratic science-driven perspective, which is people react against because they're not being included, they're not being treated as equals, or indeed as intelligent enough to know what it is they need to do. They're being, you know, spoken at. And I think that's where a lot of the bad feeling perhaps uh, against greens from not just farmers, but particularly farming communities probably comes from.
0: Yeah, all all very good points. Well, I I, I suppose in some sense, like I've kind of gotten very averse to um. Things that purport to be very, very scientific as well, because um, I mean, the climate science is clear, and that's you know, like that, that's fairly clear, and that's been proven. But then, you know, when you when you're looking at things like economics and the the, the dismal science, like you find that a lot of the assumptions underlying it are not actually true at all, and haven't they're they're not scientific, like it, they're just they just haven't gone through the same rigors, and yet somehow we're more willing to accept that that's science um, than anything else, really. Thinking about
1: what you were saying about things being overly scientific and how, yeah, my hackles are usually instantly up as soon as I get a private message from someone being like, well, actually, I'm like, you don't know this at all. Like, I work in something science. I'm like, I've had people say, I'm a scientist, and then go on to explain something. They're like, let describe themselves as a scientist. This person's not a scientist. I suppose just back to what uh, John was saying there about, about how to communicate like we do also have you know it's not just the nagging Greens it's also we have a really strong media push to discredit that as well like it's not just that the Greens are being a bit annoying about how we're communicating the, the issues with agricultural, with our agricultural system. It's also that there's a, there's a bit, it's misinformation quite a lot. There's a lot of scaremongering going on. And that is, you know, it's, it's being done in order to preserve a certain business model. Like I couldn't stop laughing there in an awful way. And I saw the National Dairy Council were uh, giving lesson packs to teachers for the homeschooling. And, And and I was thinking back to do you remember the absolute hysterics when Antashka gave a lesson pack to the green schools thing and in it it suggested reducing animal product intake and there was hysteria and now the dairy, the National Dairy Council have these lesson plans and I was reading about it and said it's mostly diet and I was reading down through what was in it and it was also dairy and the environment and I haven't gotten my hands on one yet but I guarantee you it's not fully honest Searsha, <laughs> so result-
0: stop saying such things! My God, <laughs> like <laughs> I'm sorry. I thought this was a scientists podcast. How could you say such things about the dairy council?
1: But just like in in terms of food, and I often think this as well. And this is one of the last things I'll say. I do think there's um so many of us feel like we can't talk about agriculture because we're not farmers or we you know live in the city. But I can't think of a single other thing that affects everyone so much. like everyone eats. Everyone hopes that we have clean water on the island. Everyone hopes that we have soil that can sustain us to the future. And in the particular context of, of Europe, everyone pays taxes that are then subsidized the meat industry and the dairy industry. And so I, I think a more a more broad ranging discussion, and I know people say, oh, well, you know, you can't be telling farmers what to do with their land. But the fact of the matter is farmers currently are told through the cap what to do with their land. And it's, you know, I think it has to be made really clear that the farming we have now has, has been designed. It's not just what farmers want to do. And I was talking to a woman today who's a farmer and a, suck, uh, a suckler farmer and a vegetarian. And she was like, I don't want to raise animals, but I have to if I want to get glass, if I want to get payments. She was like, I don't want to kill animals, but I have to. She's like, I would love to do other things, but currently I can't. And it is because, I suppose, the situations we have in Ireland with powerful lobbies are reflected in the EU in that 52% of farmland is only 3% of farms at a European level. So there's really powerful actors involved. And I think it would be great if, if people could start seeing farmers as... In the same way that people see workers, you know, on, on certain levels, because obviously it is it is quite a, a unique job, but there's no other job, I think, that people would so easily say or so quickly say, Well, they have to have their income down because I don't I you know I don't want to pay that much. Now, now maybe people would, but if if farmers could be conceived of as workers as well, um, as well as farmers and as well as stewards of the land, then I think it will be it would be a good way to start I suppose, really seeing that there's also people involved like that there's people who have to pay bills and put their kids to college and make those choices and especially if you know if we want environmental action to be taken in the context of cap it can't be a financial choice between it can't be a financial choice for them Sinead do you have any
0: final thoughts or will we kind of wrap it up there
3: uh, yeah, just, just a quick one is that I suppose farming is actually the most dangerous job in Ireland. I mean, more people die from like farming related kind of accidents than any other role, which is like something again, like worker safety, because of the work of kind of unions in in the US and so on, in, industri- in kind of more industrialized kind of business, we benefited from all of that. But yet... So our worker safety is quite high. But in Ireland, I mean, why is our farming kind of death rate so high still? I mean, what is that saying about farming? Why is it so dangerous? What kind of pressures are these people under? Not just the environment. It, it's it's kind of like like just in the same way that kind of, as you spoke there about kind of extractivism and, and mining and kind of the, the meat processing plant, Saoirse, where the kind of workers are treated badly in a context of where they are treating animals badly and in that kind of very pressurized environment of money, 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 and it isn't human-centered or, or animal or creature um, being centered. But in the same way, kind of extractivism does that in many other contexts where you have kind of mining that's done in that kind of very exploitative manner um, often the communities around it, there's a spike in kind of domestic violence, there's a spike in kind of abuse of women, there's a spike of, in abuse of um, Indigenous people. We allow this accident rate. What what, what kind of pressures are they under? What exploitative circumstances are we putting up with? More and more farms kind of being sold off, um, less than a few about kind of patrilineal um the farms are handed down only to men <laughs> in many contexts. So less than ten percent of farming land is kind of owned by women in Ireland, which is kind of and less with the lowest numbers of farm workers in Europe as well that are women. What what is the overarching context that's allowing this? I know it's probably a a subject for another day, but how this links to climate, I suppose, and climate action, is that there's a fair few studies now building that um I suppose this is for another another day. Quit skipping letters. We're on we A. <laughs> okay. okay, okay. Are we are we
0: going to cover gender? Will we leave this then? No, we can we, we, we. Yeah, you can go on. But um, okay.
3: yeah, we we definitely cover gender at a later. Point definitely. Equal <laughs> feminism under e yeah. Look, there's a very, there's there's a fair few studies anyway that are very very interesting in that uh, how climate action choices are gendered. So how we choose to mitigate climate change or adapt to it is is actually deeply gendered. So this <gasps> What?
0: Oh my God. <laughs> Hang on a second, Sinead.
3: Stop. Are you
0: telling me that people who are into mitigation and climate action are choosing technocratic and more male-centered solutions for, for, for climate crisis? Is that what you're saying?
3: In terms of farming and gender, so to, to give the context anyway on, on climate action choices, generally ki- caring for the environment or caring for anything uh, is considered like and this is in a series of interviews with kind of climate activists and and people who work on climate change and and i think john you've you've probably sp- spoken and written about this as well before but generally um it's considered kind of very feminine to care about things and um if you take a kind of caring approach to the environment where you have this kind of Um, eco-centric or eco before eco kind of approach, where you you see things as a whole, that's considered very feminine. So it's, and I just find it very interesting then, I mean, the kind of push for kind of more technocratic solutions like carbon taxes or emissions trading schemes, which are kind of like slight fixes, which allow the status quo to keep operating. And again, I mean, there's a whole thing about Enron and the the global economic crash and risk-taking, which again is gendered. But that kind of like refusal to look at social justice or climate justice or just transition, interesting again, because it's the, you know, there's a whole thing about masculinity and the union, trade union kind of masculinity pitted against kind of the the more sort of um, Wolf of Wall Street kind of environmentalist masculinity, (laughs) which believes in technocratic fixes and no just transition, just put up with it. (laughs) Um, Emissions trading schemes. But I just find that very interesting. And then in terms of farming, you kind of have this arc in Irish farming where you kind of have the, you know, the John B. Keen kind of man who cares for the land, who does everything, breaks his back, creating this beautiful green field, moving the stones off it. You have kind of farmers who, in that Rossport 5 book you mentioned there, Lorna, um, who say, you know, why should I be paid by the EU to look after the corncrake? I mean, I love the corncrake, I like the so- sound of it. I, I like the curlew, why do I have to be paid for these things? It's, it's just something I do. The land is not mine, it's there for generations, it's there for other people. Just as you kind of, the Land Commission gave you right to cut turf and it gave you right to take seaweed, it was kind of an interconnected whole. Um, and over the arc of, I suppose, the economic boom um, and Ireland joining the EU, you kind of have a shift from this farmer, who was kind of more holistic in his approach, still obviously lots of, Gendered issues and patriarchy, obviously, (laughs) as in that, as in the field, that kind of move from a farmer that cared or had a caring role, um, to like a a kind of very sort of 1980s kind of like Wolf of Wall Street sort of Wall Street banker kind of masculinity became the dominant idea of what masculinity should be, and that seeped into Irish farming, and you had these farmers then who had large scale agriculture, concrete slats kind of huge, big, kind of um, industrial kind of farming, buying up land just to kind of pump as much as you could out of it with, a, with as many cows as you could, and dairy farming and beef farming. And um, and that became kind of the ideal type of masculinity in Irish farming. There's some really good work by Anya Mackenwash, um and NUIG, Gender Studies Centre, on this as well. They, they studied it for Chagask. And uh, it, it's just kind of interesting because I suppose... <laughs> It's just people think these things are rational or that the economic frameworks that we have are rational and fact-based. But really, is it a load of men frightened of being women? I mean, (laughs) I feel like I'm typing in Sex and the City. (laughs)
0: Yeah, Yeah, definitely more of (laughs) that. Um, Framing is good again. Okay, I, I, think, I think we'll leave it at that, on, on that particular note. So the next episode, we're going to talk about B, which is biodiversity. So I hope you all enjoyed this um, episode.